You're listening to the Flyover Podcast, where we spotlight the success and struggles of people, organizations, and companies from all around Flyover Country. I'm Kelly Newberry, the Editorial Director for the Flyover Coalition, and today I get to interview Shelby Kearns, a young new writer whose article titled Flyover State of Mind, a Requiem for America's Heartland, was recently published in the American Spectator. As someone who's lived, studied, and worked in several flyover states, we're excited to have Shelby on the podcast to hear her perspective on what makes the region's culture so interesting, how and why we should preserve it, and what inspired her to write the piece in the first place. There's a lot to cover, so let's listen in. Shelby, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for hosting me. It's a huge honor to be on the podcast. So I'm excited to hear a little bit about the inspiration behind this piece, just because it really aligns with our point of view at the Flyover Coalition, and it was just very encouraging to hear what you had to say. So tell me a little bit about what inspired it and the meaning behind it. Yeah, so Flyover Country and some of the cultural issues surrounding it is not something that I had traditionally spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, So I'm actually from South Texas. And I grew up fairly close to urban areas, even though my town was very small. Um, George West has a population maybe of about 2,400 people, but, you know, I was maybe about an hour to an hour and a half drive from, say, San Antonio and Corpus. And I I think being in an urban area, or at least close to urban areas, I was fairly uncritical about the fact that um, media and cultural production seemed to be overwhelmingly coastal. Um, The fact that, you know, Americans might think of, you know, somewhere like L.A. or New York as being kind of the center of the universe isn't something that I spent a lot of time thinking about um, until I lived in what would be called flyover states. And so I'm a military spouse and I move quite a bit. Um, I lived in Fairbanks, Alaska, in the interior, just a couple of hours drive from the Arctic Circle, uh, close to two years. And then we recently moved back to Lawton, Oklahoma. Um, Although I will say being from Texas, I know you and Dell might have different definitions of what constitutes flyover country, and there's certainly a lot of cultural overlap between um, some of the issues that you might face in, say, America's heartland or some of the other, other flyover states in the American South, but I think I thought about these issues um, a lot more critically when I lived in Alaska and Oklahoma because I lived in states where I felt like there wasn't as much uh, media or cultural production. Um, If there was, it was something that took place locally. And the inciting incident that inspired my piece is I was listening to a morning news program. Um, There was a news story that was based in Idaho about some of their upcoming elections. Um, I think there's a concern that some of the upcoming candidates are far-right extremists. Um, And of course, this isn't a new story that I've really looked into. Um, I think if the allegations are true and there are people who are maybe a little bit more on the militant side running for office in Idaho, that's certainly something to be concerned about. But it kind of got me thinking about how when I do hear news coverage about a place like Idaho, uh, Middle America, Alaska, or even Oklahoma, it's always something that's incredibly negative Um, And they might be telling a story that I think is true, but isn't necessarily the complete picture of this region. Um, And that's kind of how I got to researching how flyover country tends to be covered. And I stumbled across the Flyover Coalition website, um, which ended up being really informative to the spectator piece. 
That's so interesting, especially to think about how you, having traveled to many different flyover states and actually lived in them, and I know um, from a previous conversation you and I had had, um, even studied in Chicago for a time, and I know we kind of talked about how if, or if Chicago is really flyover country or what their values are and that kind of a thing, but we welcome them in flyover country um, as well as Oklahoma, so we're excited to have you represented there. So tell me a little bit about what you kind of noticed when looking at the different news coverage, um, you mentioned it was a lot more negative when talked about flyover country. What do you think can be done to maybe fix that or shape national media coverage of these states? So I found a really interesting trend when I was on the Flyover Coalition website. Um, and I had stumbled across it because I think I just Googled the term flyover country because I was really curious, is there an agreed on definition um, because like you and Dell mentioned, you know, some people include the American South, some people don't, um, some people include Appalachian, some people don't. And so I, I had also Googled um, flyover country because I was really curious as to whether anyone had written a similar piece, just to make sure there wouldn't be too much overlap or whether there was something written in the past that might inform some of the way that I'm thinking about media and cultural coverage. I think um, I'm with you and Dell and some of the solutions to this problem. Uh, Dell seems to be someone who supports local journalism. And that's something that I certainly saw on the Flyover Coalition website. Um, and that not only do people from Flyover, Flyover countries, such as you and Dell, produce this original content that tells more nuanced stories of this region, but I also saw kind of in your aggregate of news stories about Flyover country, there's a very tone. Uh, with some of the more like local papers that are covering their state versus publications that are coastal. Um, the coastal publications, I think, skew towards, you know, the sensationalist, uh, which in some way I think journalism often does that, you know, Susan Sontag once said, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and those are certainly the kinds of the stories that get eyeballs. But I think when you look at local journalism, I mean, you might see stories about, um, addiction and income inequality and maybe some of those other issues that are plaguing the region. But you hear nuanced stories as well that are a little bit more on the hopeful side, such as, you know, innovation isn't something that only takes place in Silicon Valley. What are some businesses and what would be called a flyover state doing to economically revive the area? Or even um, someone like yourself, when we chatted a bit about your journalism experience, you told me that you're very interested in covering local sports. Um, because you think local sports are a kind of thing that serves as like the anchor of the community and, you know, everyone loves to rally around the local team. Um, and I think that the more local, the better in news coverage. And so that, that that's certainly one solution I can think of. Um, that's more so about journalism and news. But I think another piece is, you know, what's the cultural coverage of the area? Um, in terms of cultural production, I think stories and TV and movies that are told by the people in flyover country are a lot more interesting and nuanced than something that just comes out of Hollywood. For sure. And I was going to ask you about the other piece that you wrote for The Spectator about the horror film X um, and how that kind of portrays possibly incorrectly flyover country in some of the states. Tell me a little bit about what maybe inspired your passion to cover the, the media and beyond journalism and news, but even just the arts and other cultural things that are being produced about flyover country. And what did you find in writing about X? Um, I think this just came from me being a lover of horror movies. Um, so I'm someone who my, my undergraduate degree was in business, um, but I have a master's in the humanities. 
and I had a specialization in English literature. So I'm very interested in cultural criticism and covering art objects to include TV shows, books, movies. Um, and one of my hobbies is reading film reviews. And X is a movie that when it came out had almost universal acclaim. Um, I think there are some people who are a little bit tired of um, what some people might call IP-itis, um, IP being intellectual property. Um, the fact that almost everything like has a sequel or belongs to a cinematic universe. And the fact that X is a movie that's, you know, a bit of a pastiche of like the slasher genre. Some people are a little bit tired of like that trope in horror movie making. But what I found interesting was that nobody was talking about the fact that Hollywood still has a hillbilly problem. And we know this is a horror movie trope that was really popular in decades past. I mean, Texas Chainsaw certainly did this. In the early 2000s, you had movies like Last House on the Left that kind of um, created, you know, this idea that places like West Virginia were this like hellscape that no one should go to because, you know, a band of inbred cannibals will put spikes out on the road and chase you down. Um, and there's certainly like an entire like subgenre. But what I was really interested in in this piece was that I was under the impression that some of that media and cultural coverage had changed after the 2016 presidential election, because I think with the rise of populism in the United States and some of the shift in our, our politics and our polarization, people kind of thought that the media had learned its lesson about what it would be like to deride like an entire region and group of people and treat them with scorn. You know, people said there's a lot of resentment between people who live in a place like Appalachia or the American South um, and the group of people that we might call the quote unquote coastal elite. But then after 2016 and watching this movie, I was like, well, I don't think the media in Hollywood or the coast in general has really learned its lesson. Um, and what I also found interesting is that in decades past, these depictions of what we might call uh, flyover states or even regions like Appalachia kind of relied on creating like a landscape of horror around something that everyone can agree is bad. So for example, if you create a movie that is set in Appalachia or the South um, that wants to pillory racism, um, I think that's certainly a fair take. Although some might argue that sometimes these movies pretend that this is an issue that's confined to Appalachia or the South when we know that this is an issue that affects all of the United States. But what I really interesting about X was I thought that even more like innocuous, um, unproblematic political and social views were kind of pilloried in this movie. And that, you know, the main characters are depicted as problematic simply because they may be subscribed to like traditional conservatism or even religion. And I thought, wow, these are two things that, you know, in the past wouldn't have been treated with the same like polarization that I saw in this movie because this movie and you know keep in mind that this is a slasher movie so we shouldn't be liking the main characters but there's this undertone in the movie of kind of like you know it's 1979 uh, Reagan's election is coming up it's kind of um, a criticism of Ronald Reagan's America or even like the resurgence that we saw in evangelical Christianity at that time. As you're kind of talking about the different cultures and what you've been noticing as you not only watch like different movies and read books and film reviews and all of these things that you're engaging with, I want to turn back to the first piece you wrote for the American Spectator because you wrote something that I thought was really important. You said, in this elitist ideal, all states resemble the East and West Coasts. Based on my experience of the rich, distinct cultures of flyover country of America's heartland, I believe that the cultural erasure is a loss worth mourning. 
And I thought that was important because there are so many cultural values that are in our region that are so important that whether they're better or worse than something that might be found on the coast, it's still a part of our region and it's still important. Um, as someone who's traveled the different states like you have and even lived in them and worked in them, what, what about these cultures that you think are a loss worth mourning? Yeah, so I think before I lived in places like Oklahoma and Alaska, um, I was one of those people that might have had that bias that there's not anything worthwhile in these states. And so something that we had talked about previously is this is certainly an attitude that I changed after becoming a military spouse. Because I think when you're a military spouse and you have to move quite a bit, you change your attitude and you start to think, I can build community anywhere. Um, and you might certainly have your preferences as to where you want to live, but you see the good things to every military post that you move to. And I haven't lived in Oklahoma long enough to learn a little bit more about the distinct culture that I think makes the region special. But, you know, we moved here in February and I'm loving it so far, but I got a little bit more of a taste about what's good about Alaska. Um, so I think for a lot of people, Alaska is still an adventure. Um, it's called the last frontier for a reason. You know, it's a state that's about twice the size of Texas, but has fewer than a million people. Um, and so it's, it's a bit of a playground. You feel like it's a place where you go camping and you're truly on your own versus um, a friend of mine had described his experience camping, you know, not too far outside of Seattle. And I hear, you know, if you're in that area and you want to get into the woods, you almost have to wait in line. And Alaska is not like that. It still very much feels um, connected to its more rugged history. Alaska is also a place people will tell you, you know, your vehicle breaks down on the side of the road and somebody's there to help you right away. That's something Alaskans are really proud of. And you can kind of see the, the sense of community connection um, in everything that Alaskans do. Not only like how do you treat your neighbor, um, but what does the social service landscape look like in Alaska? And so I actually worked um, for a nonprofit called the Interior Alaska Center for Nonviolent Living. Um, one time I told someone my title and organization name and he asked me if I'm paid by the letter. <laughs> It's yeah, the, the long, the long organization name certainly made maybe marketing and branding a little bit difficult, but um, it was a longstanding organization that provides a wide range of social services to include um, affordable housing, some community coalitions. We had a reentry program for those who are experiencing the reentry process after incarceration. We had a domestic violence shelter and I was a part of the prevention program. Um, and so I provided more upstream education outreach um, to prevent domestic violence, sexual assault, suicide, and some other issues affecting the community. Um, but one thing I really liked about working there is I saw how robust their social services were um, and how many community coalitions and grassroots efforts exist in Alaska. So there's a small population. Um, the stereotype is true. Almost everyone seems to know each other. And I think that's something that even improved with how used to Zoom we got during the pandemic. We would spend a lot of time Zooming with other communities around Alaska. So you really get the sense that people care for each other and people work together here. Um, and I think that's a loss worth mourning because I think if you're someone on the coast, there's this idea that flyover country is kind of a blank slate to be remade in the image of Silicon Valley. So you'll hear like, oh, this region would improve if the people and industries just, you know, move to a place like the Dakotas. Um, whereas I think there's a balance to be struck between how do we revive the region, but also how do we maintain that kind of small, close-knit community-like culture that we see in some of these places. 
Yeah, I agree. There's definitely something to be preserved here, but we have to kind of keep our edge as well as different cities and states continue to rise and obviously dominate media, but also economically, we want to make sure we um, thrive as well. And as somebody who is younger and really starting off in your career, tell me a little bit about how you find working in flyover country, because we've one of the things that we've talked about is wanting to make sure that flyover country isn't a place that young people are trying to escape and get out of, but rather wanting to come back and just kind of encourage them to bring what they've learned and bring it back and help bolster our region as well. So what would be your encouragement to younger people moving to flyover country, whether they're returning or coming here for the first time? It's certainly difficult because as a fellow millennial, you know that we work differently than maybe our parents and other generations did. And so I think sustaining a young population anywhere is really difficult because uh, the last statistic I checked was that millennials change jobs every three years. Um, But some of that is even when they change jobs, I think our generation is still tied to certain regions. So maybe someone changes jobs every three years, but they're doing so just on the West Coast. And like I said, there's a balance to be struck between making the area attractive to our generation, but also not just completely abandoning certain industries. So from my understanding, our generation differs, and then I think there are a higher percentage of us who have obtained higher education. Um, And as a result, I think we do end up taking on different jobs. We would take on jobs that are maybe more tech-based, the kinds of things that you would see at, say, startups in Silicon Valley. Um, There are also quite a few millennials who are otherwise involved in the service industry or what we might call, you know, quote-unquote, knowledge workers. And so we would want to ask, you know, in our cities and our other areas of flyover country, how would we create these kinds of jobs, but not completely abandon something like, you know, manufacturing, agriculture, what we might call like our extractive industries, such as fossil fuels and mining. Because I think there's a way, when I talk about some of this cultural encroachment and how remaking the region in the image of Silicon Valley is treated as this kind of like, magic bullet that's going to revive the area. We don't really know if we necessarily want everyone just working in the tech industry. Um, I think there's a region, I mean, not just culturally, that we would want to hang on to a diverse economy. I would agree with that. I think that's true. So for you, Shelby, being in Oklahoma, do you find yourself limited at all when you're trying to start your career? Or do you think there are enough connections and resources here in flyover country for you to make that possible? I think the connections and resources are here. Um, My perspective is a little bit skewed just because I'm a military spouse and we have some added challenges. And so when it comes to finding um, sustainable employment, my issue isn't usually where I'm living um, because I found that wherever I've moved, I've always been able to find a job that I've become incredibly attached to. And that was certainly the case when I lived in Alaska. Um, I absolutely loved working at IAC. Uh, The issue is just the frequency of moves. Um, So the cycle for military families to be at any one duty station is usually about one to three years. Um, And you can imagine, you know, it ends up being closer to the every one to two year side of things. You know, you go through that cycle where the tail end of your duty station is making preparations to move to the next place. And so maybe you stop working about a month or two before you move to the next place. And then you get to the new place and Maybe a couple of those months are moving into your new home and going through the job application process. And by the time you feel like you get settled, um, 
and you maybe find some fulfillment and advancement that job that you're working, then it's time to move to the next place. And But I found that the remote opportunities that have become available to us after the pandemic has added some stability. And I mean, that's one of the reasons that I've started freelance writing is it's something I can kind of take with me wherever I move. Do you think moving to a flyover community and having the more welcoming areas, kind of like you were saying, people always being willing to help in Alaska, do you think that helps your transitions? I think it does because in these smaller communities, um, it still feels like a community, if that makes sense. And I think that's something that you were kind of hinting at when you talked about why you love local sports journalism so much. This is a place where it's like what everyone's doing on a Friday night is, for example, going to watch the football game. Whereas I feel like when I've lived in more urban areas before, I felt a little bit more isolated. There's that paradox of a, there are so many people, but they all feel a bit disconnected from one another. You feel a bit more anonymous and like a stranger to everyone that you meet. Whereas I feel like when I've moved to smaller communities, um, where there's an attitude of everyone knows everybody. Everybody always lends like a helping hand to their neighbor. I felt that it's a lot more easy to connect to people. And a lot of military bases, I think, are in places that would be considered flyover country. And with flyover country being an all-encompassing definition, you know, there are military bases that might be in bigger states, but they're in a more rural area that might feel a little bit like flyover country. But I definitely think that helps with community building. Yeah, that's so important, especially like you mentioned, the paradox of being around so many people, but feeling so alone. I feel like so many people encounter that even in flyover country, when you get into bigger cities, you just kind of feel alone sometimes. So we're happy to root for the small towns and also the big cities that are doing such great work for our region. So that's a great thing to have, too. And my last question for you is being from Texas. I know this can be kind of an argument to be had about whether Texas should be included in flyover country. We include it. We include most of the southern states. Um, so what is your opinion on that? I think I agree with you and Dell's definition. Um, it's anything that's intercoastal. And I also think if you are in a region where you feel like you're flyover country, then you probably are. And so I think it's not just, you know, an issue of economics in a region, but it's what does the media and cultural coverage of your state look like? And so, I mean, Texas is such a big place. I think the culture of, say, South Texas is very different from West Texas or the Texas panhandle. And so I think there are certain regions in Texas that might feel a little bit more, quote unquote, flyover country than others. But I think we have a similar issue of culture wars and our media coverage. I think a lot of people, you know, paste on the same solution on Texas as they do on other states in flyover country. And what I mean by this is, you know, there's kind of a sense of cultural encroachment in Texas. Um, you see a lot of fear around like the influx of people who are moving from the West Coast, you know, to places like Austin. Um, I think in 2012 at the Texas Republican Convention, they had T-shirts that said something like, don't California, my Texas. And so that's certainly a sensibility that I think you'll see in other places in California or um, in flyover country. And I saw that when I was in Alaska, too. I saw bumper stickers that said stay in the low 48. But um, other news stories will actually say that people from California who move to places like Texas usually just share a, a Texan sensibility. So it's like they're bringing California culture with them. They're more so like adapting to Texas. But I, one of the stories um, from the Flyover Coalition that I found really compelling was an article about what's being called the blue exit, like the blue exit. 
um, people were saying, oh, it's really important that um, Democrats on the West Coast vote with their feet and move to regions and fly over countries so they can turn the states blue. And I definitely see a similar uh, media coverage of Texas and that for the past few presidential elections, there's always this prediction that this is going to be the year that Texas turns purple. This is going to be a year where you see more counties in Texas voting Democrat in the presidential election, which isn't something that's happened yet. It's still very much a red state. Um, but I think in that way, and that I think there's this fantasy on the coast, and it's an elitist one, I might add, as I mentioned in the piece, that flyover country will also, you know, vote like the West Coast, think like the West Coast, talk like them, and have the same interest in industries. And so I think in that way, Texas has a lot in common with flyover country. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's always fun to hear different people's opinions and perspectives on their own home states that are in flyover country. And just, it's a fun thing to debate about, I guess. So Shelby, thank you so much for joining me today. It's exciting to hear about the work you're doing. We're excited for you and all the different projects that you have. If people want to follow you, what um, is your Twitter account or other places they can follow you at? You can follow me on Twitter at Shelby T. Kearns. I'm on LinkedIn as well for anyone who wants to connect with me. And I recently developed a personal website, shelbykearns.com. You can see some of my clips, such as my pieces in the American Spectator, but you can also see some of my freelance writing services. I'm especially passionate about helping individual projects and nonprofits, but I offer some writing services to businesses as well. Well, thank you again, Shelby. This was a fun conversation and I'm looking forward to reading more of your writing and seeing all the things that you have going on. Oh, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Fiverr Podcast. As Shelby said, you can keep up with her on social media as well as her website, shelbykearns.com. And as always, to catch up on the latest around Flyover Country, visit www.flyovercoalition.org.